If you're here for the first time and we haven't met, my name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan, and uh, periodically I get the opportunity to bring the message. And today we're in the sixth week of a seven-week series where we've been going through the book of Revelation. And what we've been talking about in this series is that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. And Kara, I'm just going to have you lead me through it because I've been clicking it nonstop and it's not moving. So I'll just have you do it. So, uh, In fact, if you think back to the very first week in this series, we saw that in the first verse of the first chapter of Revelation, it says that this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Some translations say it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we saw how this word revelation, although you and I might have some, some things we bring with it, some connotations, or it really just simply means an unveiling or a revealing. And so throughout the book, we've seen Jesus unveiled. We've seen attributes of Jesus that hopefully have widened our perspective of who he is. And as we've done that, hopefully this wider perspective has driven us to our knees in amazement, in gratitude, in worship, and in adoration of him. Now, before we get in too deep in today's topic, has anybody else out there wondered over the last several months, like, how is this all going to end? Like, when are we, when are we going to get back to normal, right? What's school going to look like in a couple of weeks? Are we going to have sports again? Are we going to have church services that look like they looked back in February before COVID hit? See, the Bible isn't very specific about how this particular season is going to end. It doesn't tell us when they'll develop a vaccine. It doesn't tell us who's going to win the election in November. It doesn't tell us what school is going to look like. But the Bible does paint a very clear picture of how it's all going to end. Of what the end of human history is going to look like. And the Bible's track record for fulfilling prophecies up to this point has been perfect. So you can have extreme confidence that the way the Bible paints the picture is the way it's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. And so today we're going to look at the climax of the book of Revelation. And in fact, I would say the climax of all of Scripture, of all of human history, the moment that creation has been looking forward to ever since the fall. And that's the return of the king. Does that quicken your pulse a little bit when you hear that? you have a sense of excitement? Do you get chills when you think about the second coming of the king of kings and the Lord of lords? See, the entire book of Revelation has been preparing us for the great moment that we're going to look at together today. Throughout the series, we've been looking at Revelation. We've seen Jesus unveiled. We've seen the curtain pulled back and all the imagery and the details about him. And today we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 19. So if you have your Bible with you or if you have your Bible app on your phone, feel free to go there, Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to see that this chapter is going to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole purpose of what we've studied in the book is to get us ready for this moment. If you had the audio version of your Bible app going, this is where you'd hear the drum roll, like this would be the crescendo right here. And it's not just the book of Revelation that's been preparing us and speaking about this moment. All of Scripture has been prophesying and highlighting the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, the second coming of Jesus to earth is clearly talked about over 1,800 times in the Bible. It's mentioned 318 times and in 23 of the 27 New Testament books alone. Everything leads up to this. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets like John, even the angels, they all bear witness to Jesus, 
the Son of God. In fact, you see on the screen here that Revelation 19.10 says, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. I want to read that again. The essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In fact, one Bible commentator, when commenting on 1910, wrote the following. I love this. He says, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here we're going to see the ultimate example of prophecy is going to be the second coming of Jesus. So Revelation 19.11, let's turn there, and we see that Jesus is going to return in a much different manner than he came the first time. He's not coming as a babe in a manger. He's not coming as a humble carpenter's son. Instead, Jesus is going to return as a mighty king prepared for battle. So we'll jump in now to the passage, Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. That's quite the descriptive picture of the coming king. Verse 11 starts with, I saw heaven opened. See, throughout Revelation, God has been giving John little glimpses into heaven. A little crack here, a door here, a window there. But now we see all of heaven opened. All of heaven split for John to see into. And this is actually a fulfillment of another prophecy and an answer to a prayer of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prays this prayer in 64, verses 1 and 2. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would open them, right? That you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. So we see here in Revelation 19 the fulfillment of this prayer of the prophet Isaiah. God has completely opened up heaven's doors and we're able to see the king of heaven and the king of glory coming with his army. That's another example of how Revelation is widening our perspective and pulling back the curtain on Jesus Christ. This is a far different picture than he came the first time. Think of the contrast. I mean, it's no wonder so many people missed Jesus the first time because they were looking for something more like we see in this picture. They were expecting a conquering warrior, not an innocent infant. They were expecting a king who would rout their enemies, not a servant leader who would wash the feet of his disciples. They were expecting a ruler who would overthrow anyone opposed to God, not someone who would die a criminal's death on a cross. But here we see that Jesus will return as a warrior, 
and as a conquering king. So let's kind of dig into this very descriptive picture that John paints of of Jesus. It's awe-inspiring. The first thing we see is that Jesus sits upon a white horse. So we need to understand that in biblical times, most all of Israel's soldiers would have been foot soldiers. Just to have a horse was a huge advantage. And to have a horse spoke of, of speed and power and honor. And it wasn't just any horse that Jesus sat on. We see that he sat upon a white horse. See, a white horse symbolized victory. In fact, when a a Roman general or a Roman emperor would have a successful military campaign, they would come back and parade through the city on a white horse. So keep in mind as we read through this that not only did John write Revelation to us, but he wrote Revelation specifically to first century Christians as well. And so this, this vision of a white horse would have been even more meaningful to them than it probably is to us. John then tells us that the writer is called Faithful, and true. I can think of no title more appropriate for Jesus Christ than faithful and true. He is faithful to keep all his promises and what he speaks is always true. In fact, scripture says that he is the truth. See, because Jesus is faithful to his word and faithful to his righteous character, then it follows that he will judge righteously. And because he judges righteously, he even wages war righteously. He doesn't wage war out of petty selfishness or out of maliciousness, but he wages war against sin and evil because he is perfect, he is righteous, and he is holy. And when Jesus came to earth the first time, wicked people judged him. But when he comes the second time, he will judge every wicked, ungodly person. John continues with his description, and he tells us that the eyes of Jesus are a flame of fire. If we think back to chapter 1, that's the same description John used there, that his eyes were blazing fire. This means that nothing will escape his piercing gaze. These eyes are going to see every secret of every heart. There's no lust, no deceit, no bitterness, no greed, no unbelief that they won't detect. He's going to see us through and through to our very core. John then tells us that on the head of Jesus are many crowns. Now we've seen this word crowns a lot throughout the book of Revelation. If you've been reading at home, you've probably seen that they talk about crowns a lot. In most of Revelation, the original Greek word used for crowns is actually a crown of achievement. It would be more like a wreath, like something you would place on a competitor's head after they finished a race. But the original word that's used here is a crown of authority, the kind of crown that you would put on a king's head. And this shows Jesus' sovereignty. And the fact that Jesus wears many crowns indicates that he is the supreme and only king. That he will rule over everything and there was no one besides him as he rules over the earth. We then read that Jesus has a name written which no one knows except himself. Here we're reminded that there are hidden mysteries and depths to Jesus Christ. They're too much for us to grasp. The reality is he is majestic beyond our understanding. In all his fullness, he is just simply too much for our comprehension. John goes on to say that he is dressed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, most commentators believe that this is the blood of judgment. This is the blood of those who oppose Jesus. It's the blood of his slaughtered enemies as he strikes down the nations. And we would see that this passage parallels a passage in Isaiah 63. See, his garments are splattered with blood because this isn't his first battle, but it will be his last battle. 
then there are a, a smaller number, a minority of commentators who believe the blood on his robe represents the blood that was shed on the cross. John continues with his description of the returning Jesus by announcing another name that he has called that removes any doubt as to who the rider of the white horse is. He says that his name is called the Word of God. With this title, John makes it clear beyond a shadow of doubt that the rider of the white horse is the Lord Jesus Christ. John has used this title, the Word of God, previously to describe Jesus as God and as Creator. If we go back to John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 1, he writes the following, In the beginning the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see the Word is clearly Jesus Christ. Then Paul would echo this in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Paul writes the following, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you've been made complete, And he is the head over all rule and authority. So as the word of God, Jesus is the revelation of God to man. And he will be the judge of man whom he created. John then goes on to tell us the armies of heaven are dressed in the finest of pure white linen. They followed him on white horses. Now you may have noticed it doesn't say anything about the armor or about the weapons of the armies of heaven. That's because they're not going to fight. They're really going to be more like witnesses. This isn't even going to be a fight. This is going to be complete domination by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So that just makes me wonder, I don't know what battles you're trying to fight today, but stop trying to fight them and let Jesus fight them for you. I don't know what addiction it is you're trying to overcome. I don't know what fear it is you're trying to beat. I don't know that relationship that always seems to be in chaos, but stop trying to fight that battle on yourself And let Jesus fight that battle for you. Now, I've sat where you're sitting right now, and I've had a preacher tell me, let Jesus fight your battles. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't know how to do that. I mean, that's a churchy thing to say about how do I let Jesus fight my battle? So if you can relate to that, if you've been there too, let me give you four practical ways that you can have Jesus fight your battles. Number one, submit to his authority. As Lord and King of your life, what he says goes, period. That's the first step. Submit to his authority. Second, ask him to help you grasp his great love for you. You don't understand how much he loves you, I guarantee you. I don't understand how much he loves me. Ask him to help you understand his great love for you. If you have trouble with that, reflect on the cross. Third, Ask him to help you see things the way he sees things. So we have such a distorted perspective on things. Ask him to remind you that his boundaries and his rules are for your protection, not for your restriction. The reason God gives us boundaries, the reason God gives us his law is because he loves us. Because he knows what is best for us and he wants what is best for us. And then lastly, confess that you need his power for victory, that you are going to flat up fall on your face if you try to do it by yourself. Acknowledge, and I would say even embrace your dependence on him. Now we hear that and we think, well, that just makes us sound weak, but I'm telling you, nothing could be further from the truth. God's word says that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So when we are weak, he is mighty. He is strong. 
And if you'll do those four things, you'll have the king of kings winning battles for you instead of trying to fight them on your own. The next thing we see in John's description is that Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, this doesn't mean that he's carrying a sword in his teeth, you know, like a, a pirate in a movie. It doesn't mean that he's spitting swords out as he talks. It simply means that his words are powerful. He's going to win this victory simply by speaking it. He's going to speak a word, and it's going to be done. Just like he spoke the world into existence, he's going to speak, and he's going to overthrow everything opposed to God. John then wraps up the section by seeing his title displayed more clearly than ever. I love the end of this. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, The King of All Kings and Lord of All Lords. So John has, has given us this pretty in-depth, pretty amazing description of Jesus coming out of heaven. And hopefully it's, it's widened our perspective even more about just how awesome he is. And we recognize that there's nothing on earth that even remotely compares to him. That he's going to return as this warrior king and unleash the wrath of God on his enemies. So the first time Jesus came, he came as a redeemer. The second time he's going to come as a ruler. The first time Jesus came, he faced a cross. The second time he comes, he's going to wear a crown. The first time Jesus came, there was a tomb. The second time he comes, there's going to be a throne. And it's going to be awesome if you've placed your faith in him. So what does that mean for us today? Why should we care? Well, it means that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've trusted his work on the cross, that we should look forward to the return of the King. Because we're going to get to spend eternity with Him. It should impact our relationship with Him, with our family, with our co-workers, with our classmates, with our teammates. Because of His goodness, we live to glorify Him. And we wait with anticipation for His return. It should also encourage us because it guarantees that one day, our mighty King is going to set everything right. He's going to overthrow evil. He's going to overthrow Satan. He's going to be victorious. And that brings us to our next point. And that's that Jesus will be victorious in battle, destroying Satan and his enemies. Jesus will be victorious in battle, destroying Satan and his enemies. So we read this awesome description of Jesus, and he's getting ready to come down. And now we're coming into a section of Scripture that has been widely debated for centuries. And I'll just tell you that there are men that are much smarter than me who spent way more time developing their perspective on this than I have that they would have a different viewpoint than me. There have been many disputes, some of them very bitter, on how to interpret some of the details of this next passage, the timing, the characters, what they symbolize, etc. And there have been divisions among Christ's followers that have been pretty rough. And sometimes people in each camp have been very intolerant of the views of people in any other camp than themselves. So we said at the beginning of the series, our goal is not to pitch our particular thoughts and ideas on some of the more divisive topics in the book of Revelation, but to focus on the unveiling of Jesus throughout the book. So I'm going to share with you my perspective on this next passage, but I just share it's my perspective, and you would find other people who are certainly smarter than me who may have a different perspective. But I do hope that you guys are having some of these conversations in your small groups. I hope that you're having some of these conversations with your mentors. I hope you're digging in and wrestling with some of this. And I hope if you find yourself in a different camp than someone else that you're extending grace and that you're really trying to hear from their perspective as well as share your own. The fact remains there may be some disputes, 
But the fact remains, and we can all take unity in this, that there will be a battle and Jesus will be victorious. That we can all agree on as believers. We can all find unity in that, that Jesus will defeat Satan, evil, and all who oppose him. So let's go ahead and jump into that last passage. Revelation 19, 17 through 21. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that comes from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. That's pretty graphic, pretty disturbing. So after describing the appearance of Jesus Christ and and heaven standing open and the armies of heaven coming down, John now turns his attention back to the earth to see what will happen. And what we see is a, a very gruesome battle, at least gruesome for the enemies of Jesus. It's one last desperate attempt to prevent Jesus Christ from taking complete control. So we see the beast, who I believe is the Antichrist, and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse, who again we know is Jesus. They try one more time to defeat God. The armies of the earth come out against the Lord, and I think, how stupid do you have to be? It's futile. It's never going to happen. It's not even going to be close. It's a battle. You can't win. They all fail, and in fact, they all perish. And how is the battle won? The Bible tells us it's simply killed, they're all simply killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the horse. Jesus just speaks the word and it's over. For all you comic book movie fans out there, it's kind of like when Thanos snaps his fingers, right, in Avengers Infinity War and half the universe is gone. Only with Jesus Christ, it's every one of his enemies. He just speaks the word and they're routed. Then afterwards, the picture here is there's going to be a great feast For the birds of the air as they gorge themselves on the bodies of the corpses. Yeah, it's a very graphic picture. But the truth is, God, no one who opposes God is going to be exempt from his judgment. It's a reality. It's in Scripture. Then the beast, who again I believe represents the Antichrist and the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire. And if we were to to continue reading on into chapter 20, we see that Satan is also going to join them there. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, and there they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And one of the things I want to point out about verse 10 is something that happens a little bit earlier in chapter 20 and verse 1. We see that there is an anonymous angel who bounds the devil for a thousand years. It's not God the Father. It's not Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not even Michael or Gabriel or another named angel. It's just simply an anonymous angel. It's kind of like Jesus said to this anonymous angel, hey, why don't you take care of my light work? (laughs) 
See, guys, the devil isn't on the same playing field as the Godhead. It's not like he's slightly less powerful than God. It's not even close. He is a created being, and as such, he's a gnat, and he knows it. Now, compared to you and me, sure, the devil is powerful. He's smart, right? He's, he's crafty. But compared to God, he's nothing. And some of you need to quit making him out to be a bigger deal in your life than he really is. Because as a believer, as a Christian, you have the third person of the Trinity indwelling you. The Holy Spirit indwells your life, and so if the devil has any play in your life, it's only because you're allowing him to do so. You need to put him back in his place. These are some very disturbing, very real images of a deadly battle. I don't believe this is figurative. Again, this is my perspective on it. My hope is that as Christ followers, we wouldn't be fearful of the idea of this battle, but instead it would bring us hope. Hope that one day Jesus is going to right every wrong. That one day Jesus is going to put things back like God had originally intended. That he's going to triumph over the creator of sin and darkness, and Satan and his allies will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the world and everything evil in it is going to be overturned. And you and I are going to be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to have this amazing experience with Jesus where we have peace. And there's no more schemes of the enemy. There's no more COVID. There's no more cancer. There's no more sickness. There's no more fighting. There's no more bitterness. No more broken relationships. No more jealousy. No more anger. No more neglect. Jesus overthrows all of these things and ushers us into his presence after the final judgment. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, what? Final judgment? Wasn't that battle we just had the final judgment? Isn't this over yet? (laughs) We read in the beginning of chapter 20 that the devil was bound for a thousand years and then at the end of that thousand years he's going to be released or he's going to cause man to rebel against God one more time. And it's at that point that he's thrown into the lake of fire in verse 10 that we just read. And there he's going to be tormented forever and ever. But after he's thrown into the lake of fire, Jesus will righteously judge one last time. And we see that in Revelation chapter 20 beginning in verse 11. It says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a very difficult passage to teach on. I say this with no excitement or no anticipation in my voice or in my heart. Some teachers would even shy away from this passage because they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to offend anyone who's checking out their church. But it would be unloving of me not to honestly teach this passage. I don't get to pick and choose which parts of God's word I want to be obedient to. So please know that the closing of this message comes from a place of great humility and that I have great sorrow for anyone who would not choose to take advantage of God's mercy and his patience. But one of the Bible's yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies that we read about here is the final judgment of God. 
And just like you can take the other prophecies we've talked about to the bank, this will happen too, I guarantee it. The Bible is very clear here that one day, everyone who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is going to be righteously judged by a holy God. And according to John, this group of people will be made up of both great and small, rich and poor, leaders and servants, free and slave. It's a reminder that all classes of the world will face judgment if they haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, there's going to be many religious people there, many good people there, people who have done many great works. And what will happen to these good people if they haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus answers this question for himself in Matthew chapter 7. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. This final judgment will be for those who have not put their trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. I mean, look at the self-righteousness in their response, right? Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? But as believers, we know it has nothing to do with what we did. It has everything to do with what he did at the cross. Because we know we're all going to fall hopelessly short. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter how we live. It absolutely matters how we live. But we all know, even as believers, we're going to fall hopelessly short of God's perfect standard. And the only hope we have is the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason this judgment has to happen is to settle all rebellion against God's righteousness and His perfection. That'd be pretty disheartening if that was all the story, but thankfully there's more to it. There's hope. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 gives us this hope when we put our faith in Christ. It says, but for those in Christ, this record won't be counted against them. For Christ has paid the penalty for them. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Come on, change. Thanks, Karen. Is it freezing on you? (laughs) Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's no wonder we call it the good news, right? And and, and we call it the good news, not just good news. It's the good news because any other good news pales in comparison to this. That you and I can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ while at the same time He bore our guilt and our shame. That Christ bore our sin and we've been clothed in His righteousness when we place our faith in Him. And the Bible says that for all of us who have done that, our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And when he returns, he'll credit us with his righteousness for believing in him, and we get to spend eternity with him. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this this final judgment? How do we respond to this message? I just want to talk to to two groups of people. The first group is if, if you're not sure if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I just beg you to do business with God today. Don't put it off. Do business with God here and now. Abandon the hope you have in yourself and your accomplishments. Abandon the hope you have in how you stack up against your neighbor or against your coworker. Trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and his finished work on the cross. Acknowledge that you need a Savior and he's the only one capable of saving you.
If you have questions about how to do that or what your next steps would be, I would love to talk with you after the service. If someone invited you here today, I'm sure they would love to have that conversation with you. If you know your name is written in the book of life, I would just encourage you to take some time today and thank God for his mercy and his favor on you. Thank God for pursuing you even though you brought nothing of value to the transaction. Thank God that it's all based on his goodness and his character, not based on you and your character. And I would also encourage you to think about people that you know and love who don't have their name in the book of life yet. I'd encourage you to pray for them, and I'd encourage you to ask God how he can use you to share his great love for them, to communicate to them that there's a God who loves them and who went to great lengths to save them so that they too can look forward to the return of the King. Let's pray. Jesus, we just say we are excited for your return. Because we want to see you in your glory. We want to see you in your perfection and your righteousness. But at the same time, God, we are grateful that you are patient. We're grateful that you have given people we love and care about more time to put their faith in you. And So God, I just pray that, that whatever we've learned in this series in Revelation, that above, above everything else, that you've just widened our understanding and appreciation of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, of who he is, of how he's going to return, of how he's going to rule, of how he's going to set every wrong right. And the fact that we get to enjoy eternity in your presence is just, is just mind-blowing. God, your word says it, so we know we can count on it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be intentional this week, just in our dealings with others. Could we be the hands and feet of Jesus? Could we not only love them with our words, but with our actions? Would we look for opportunities to communicate to people how much you love them and what you did so that they could have a relationship with you? We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.